You're listening to an ACA podcast. I was going to take the liberty of quickly um, trying to frame this discussion by talking about a couple of projects um, from a long time ago, because um, for me, these, these questions have been going on for a while. Um, maybe the next slide. In my own practice, I've been asking questions about public space for um, some years. Um, and as you'll see from this credit, this is a project from nearly 25 years ago, and partly I put it up to span the 25 years in the framing of this discussion. So I've usually worked from the perspective of an architect, and, um, but, a, but with a very critical lens, perhaps, on the professional norms about which we commission public space from a point of view of the built environment. What do I mean by that? Well, I guess in this project, and this project was undertaken in the context of an art and architecture collaborative practice called MUFF, based in the UK, founded by Liza Fjord, Juliet Bidgood, and Catherine Clark, the artist. Um, this project was shared ground Southwark, and it's a streetscape commissioned by a local authority, so a pavement, effectively. And in this project, we asked ourselves the difficult question and the question that Southwark Council had not bothered to ask us to ask, who and where is the client in projects for public space? Answering this question led to the development of an independently developed film project, um, which spoke on the right, you can see all the dots. Um, the film project was called Shared Ground, and the project was uh, voices, 100 contested voices and desires for Southwark Street and really started to surface how we can intrude on public spaces, other people's public spaces, without somehow understanding the stories that already exist there. And I think that's a sort of pivotal piece of thinking about tonight. Um, once completed, that project, nearly 25 years old, was really quite influential um, because its approach to participation or talking with people who occupied the site already was entirely um, new uh, or absent in conventional commissioning of, of public space projects. Um, next slide. And similarly, in another project, Horse's Tail, this again was for a local authority, a design for a community garden, in this case, became a really extended research project that explored the hidden role of horses in the landscape of the marshes of the Thames estuary. So this is an area bordered by social housing. And again, the council didn't ask us to include a question which was, um, who are the users of this landscape? Um, in fact, they, the housing estates accommodated travelers um, who are an ethno-cultural group um, hailing from Ireland who have a nomadic traveling practices. They were housed in the housing estates. And with primary and secondary school children, we developed performance projects to really start to ask questions about um, marginalised and invisible cultural identities. So those projects, in a way, I just wanted to use them to frame the conversation tonight and to frame each of the practitioners that follows me. Um, their approaches to designing that involves more extended conversations with sites that might rewrite the original briefs of those sites and that arguably evolve different sorts of project outcomes as a result. And by using those site-based practices to catalyze new uses, build new constituencies, amplify marginalized voices, they foreground more complicated things that often built environment, architecture, urban practices struggle to do. So nearly 25 years later, and next slide, and there's a large, and actually the next slide again, there's a larger spectrum of practitioners in this space, as we probably know, now acting, actively informing city making um, neatly, some of them are, are already, um, this is a very recent publication um, from MAMA, edited by Charlotte um, Callum and uh, Amy. And it's a fantastic, um, also a fantastically synergistic representation of work in this space. So the premise of this roundtable is really to provide a glimpse into some of the methods and approaches of our invited guests. Um, to think about how we make spaces public and also consider critically how those processes can be better if they need to be, can be, should be um, embedded into broader, more mainstream practices of city making. Um, so I'm going to introduce each speaker in turn um, as they go and um, they're going to speak for five to seven minutes or however long they want to speak for 
and, um, and then we're going to move on, and at the end we're going to hopefully uh, pull out some questions. So I'm going to start with Sarah. Next slide. Um, I'm going to start with Sarah and uh, Auntie Carolyn. So Sarah is an Associate and Lead Indigenous Advisor at Jackson Clements Burroughs Architects. She's a lecturer at Monash University and a Program Advisor and Curator of the Black Architecture Series at the M Pavilion. She's Director of Parlour, Women Equity Architecture, a member of the Victorian Design Review Panel for the Office of the Victorian Government Architect and the Co-Chair of the Australian Institute of Architects First Nations Advisory Working Group quite a mouthful. She's also the co-creator of this amazing space um, that she created with Nawit, Dr. Carolyn Briggs, who is the founding chair of the Boonwurrung Land and Sea Council and custodian of the Yulikit William Mbrungar. Um, so Sarah's going to tell us a little bit today about this space and how it was made. Over to you. Thanks, Mel. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge Wurundjeri as the traditional custodians of this country and pay my respects and acknowledge uh, Nawi Caroline Briggs, Ani Caroline, um, as the co-creator of this space. And really this space comes from um, a conversation that started many, many years ago with Ani Caroline of asking the question, do you see yourself reflected in the environment and the answer being no. So we've been exploring over time through many, many yarns, how can we reflect, how can our built environments reflect the countries that they're built on, which is one aspect in my perspective of indigenizing the built environment. There are several. And so in the wider context, we're talking about the health and well-being of country. We're talking about not destroying it. Um, we're talking about projects either maintaining, repairing or celebrating country. And there are so many things that we need to do from an environmental, from an ecological, from a cultural um, perspective to both make spaces welcoming, make spaces safe, and make spaces representative of the countries and the peoples that represent them. So we started this exhibition um, oh, over a year ago now. Where's Max? I can't remember how long it's been. It feels like a while. It was all in lockdown. So we had some fun challenges of uh, being isolated and not being able to actually get out to the timber yards and all of the um, quarries that we wanted to, but essentially this exhibition asks the question or focuses on one aspect, which is the material aspect of country, which is a huge component of what we do as built environment practitioners. So we asked the question, if our public spaces were made from the materials of country, what would those materials be? We set ourselves the brief of what is now called Victoria, um, and we set ourselves the parameters of only using methodologies that could be employed in built environment practices. So data that is available to us, uh, available to us as built environment practitioners, there's no specialist processes outside of that because we wanted, I guess, maybe cheekily in my mind, I wanted people to stop saying, oh, it's too hard because it's not. It's available to us and it's something that we can do and we can employ in our process of understanding site, of understanding country, and of representing country in the built environment. So there are 55 different elements in here. Everything in here is meant to be touched and smelt and touched and felt and, you know, however you'd like to experience it. But And there's very limited um, graph, uh, sort of text material on the walls. And that's very specific because we want people who enter this space to take time to develop a relationship with these materials first to observe them, to understand them, to really understand their qualities, but also maybe ask the question, where did they come from? And all of that information is available. It's available online, and there's some more information available on the panel. But it's about taking a more indigenous approach, which is observation first, building a relationship first, and then seeking the data later. So we looked at over 100 public spaces. We looked at their, um, their bioregions, which is what this map at the back represents. We looked at the geology that underlied them, and we overlaid a series of layers of maps effectively um, to come up with an understanding of what is the material identity of that country. And that research uh, gave us more than 55 materials. Um, but what that then means, oh sorry, what then happens is we were, all of those materials related them to what is actually readily available for use in the built environment. So what you see here are materials that are accessible, that are usable in the built environment, and some of them are in their more uh, normal form, that we might know them in, as in bluestone. 
um, and others are in their, I guess, their early stages. So down the front, you've got some clay that's in its in-ground form and then its refined form. So those are the two piles that are there, which then turns into this unfired brick that's behind me. Um, and then turns into a fired brick and a couple of other um, items in the exhibition. So there's a couple of component parts. Um, there's also whole elements in their most natural form. And there's also materials that are made from component parts of where the materials that are combined together, some of those or all of those are made from countries. So at the very start of the exhibition, there's glass. So that has sand from Lang Lang, Lang Lang area. And then we have ceramics, so we worked with Anchor Ceramics and they created a piece for the exhibition, which is the second item in, um, which its clay body effectively has um, component parts that are from different areas of Victoria. So all of those are identified in the research and are located uh, online. And really, there's, there's so many sort of, you know, all the conversations that we had over this process, there's the, you know, how do we make it easy, how do we make people understand how to do this, all the pragmatic side of it, and then there's the deep cultural aspect of it, of what does that actually mean, you know, what is extraction, do we think about what's being extracted and how it's being extracted and where it's being extracted from, is it appropriate to extract all of these things? Um, you know, are there stories that are attached to these materials? You know, bluestone is part of creation stories. The timbers are alive, you know, every material in this um, room was alive at some point before it became here. Is it still alive when it's here? Is it still alive when it's in our built environment? What have those materials seen over their lifetime? And are those stories being captured in the places that they're being reused? There's so many gray areas, I think, that we sort of have left open for others to fill their, with their own answers, but um, I certainly don't have the answers to all of those questions. You know, every day I work uh, on public spaces, I work in the public sector of JCB, and we're creating public environments every day. And every day we're, you know, we're removing things, we're building things, we're bringing things from other places, and there's ne never usually enough time to question why we're doing that. So for me, this exhibition personally was taking the time to question that and to have space to time and think about it, but also to encourage everyone to actually stop and think about the materials that they're choosing to use and why and where they come from and whose country they represent and what that might mean for the future. Sarah, fantastic. Um, Jean Borden is my next um, victim. Associate Professor Jean Borden is an award-winning communication designer, head of the design department at Monash Art Design and Architecture, and he's also co-director of the XYX Lab. Jean combines the knowledge of gendered spatial practice and his communication design expertise within collaborative research projects aimed at mitigating gender equality in Australia's urban environments. Far away. Thanks, Mel. Oh, that's quite loud. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll stay. Where do you hold this? Is there the sweet spot? That's lower? Lower. Excellent. Um, thanks, Mel, for the introduction. I too would like to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nations and also extend that acknowledgement to First Nations people globally and especially to those who are in the room with us tonight. Um, if I can have the, the first slide, please. Thank you. Um, so, to, one of the things that were, is important about the, the projects that we do in XYX Lab, so myself and colleagues at Monash University in the lab, uh, Associate Professor Nicole Carnes, Jess Berry, Timothy Moore, uh, we're looking at the way that we can kind of start to engage data in a really public way. We did a, an earlier project um, last year, which was in Sydney, in Tinshed's Gallery called Hypersex City, where we, were, we looked at an, an incredibly immersive space, an entire room full of data graphically represented on the walls. And it was over 100 pieces of, of data pertaining to harassment and you know, the kind of awful things that, are, that do occur in cities. Um, and we ran a workshop there. And at the end of the workshop, this very quiet person who had been participating came up to me and said, why is this in a gallery? The gallery was a safe space. It was perceivably a privileged space. This data needed to be externalized. It needed to be taken outside. 
Um, so all of the kind of ideas around kind of, you know, data is frequently kind of kept hidden. It's in government reports, it's in academic journals. It's disparately dislocated all over the place. What we wanted to do was bring it together in one publicly accessible space so people could kind of understand that they are represented within the data. But taking on board the, this kind of comment about, oh, we really need to take it outside, take it public. And when the opportunity to participate in this exhibition at ACCA came up, it was the absolute perfect opportunity to take what we were learning about people's engagement with data to the street. So the, the Keep Running um, project, which you can see the first of here, so it, it is all typography, it's all language, um, but what it's made up of is statistics. So you can see that there's essentially type made from bar charts and uh, pie charts. And you can see there's a, a detail there uh, for 25%. Um, but each one of those represents a particular piece of data. But for us, what was also really important, as well as taking it to the street, was to understand the narrative that lay beneath the data. We worked with, earlier uh, in 2021, worked with a uh, collaborator, CrowdSpot, where, and over 20 local government authorities to gather data from public spaces. It was mid-COVID, so, and it was all about the outside space. It was all about recreational space. So mid-COVID meant that the only thing people could do was go for the dreaded COVID walk for up to two hours within five kilometers. So actually able to get quite a lot of data because gyms were shut, swimming pools were shut, people were using public space for exercise. So we gathered enormous amounts of data through the, this process of people being able to pinpoint where they were within a location in the city, but while that gathered amounts of data as to whether it was a safe space or an unsafe space, what was really important was divulging the, the narrative underneath it. Why was it safe or unsafe? Um, so in this particular example, and it's talking about someone's journey that they did daily from a tram to, uh, you know, to the, the, the fastest route, was to go through an underpass, a dark, perceivably scary underpass. And the, the feeling that they felt as they went on that journey was the only thing you could do if someone followed you in was to just keep running. So through this data, we gathered enormous amounts of these kind of really succinct pieces of narrative that underscored people's experience of the city. Thank you. Next one. So we, and taking them to the, the street was really important. So it was, you know, these are these temporary bill posters. So we pasted up, this is in St Kilda and various city, various city locations and they were on a rotational basis. So at some point, someone would be able to see them, uh, regardless of whether it was the northern suburbs or the uh, southeast, wherever they were, western suburbs, at some point, they would be able to see these, these narratives. Um, the first one, and it, the intention was to, for the, the major type, to get people to stop and try and configure or work out what the story was. So I go a little faster here and you can see ahead. So there's the, the entire uh, story there, which was also pasted onto the, the posters as well. But the intention was also to make people realise that there are these personal stories underneath the statistics, and they're possibly shared narratives as well. It's not the only person, this person who, uh, who's indicated here, that's not the only person who feels that way about public space. Uh, go to the next slide, thank you. Um, and in these ones you can see uh, the different locations and spaces they were, but my point about putting this particular slide in is to kind of indicate that we can't really predict or curate exactly what our things are going into either. As you can see, the, you know, it's in relationship to everything else that's in the city. Uh, and you can see in the, the top right-hand side, we're pasted up against the new Adidas sports bra advertisement. So there's, you know, essentially naked women demonstrating where the, the marks are on their flesh from the, the elastics of, of standard sports bras. I mean, it could end up next to anything. The dreaded pits, what is it, the, you know, the tradie deodorant, pits and bits ads, shocking. Um, yeah, waiting for that. But the, it, my point being that there's all of these other prompts, these visual prompts within the city that in some way and sometimes actually fade out what is being said in other things. And to the last slide. 
Uh, this is um, probably one of my proudest moments as a designer, was getting that billboard at the corner of Gray Street and Fitzroy Street above the, the chemist there. Uh, and what it says is more than 50% of women feel unsafe in public spaces after dark. And this location that you know, could be visible from, from traffic from all directions uh, and particularly kind of vibrant at night to be able to see it there um, was a, a great location but also a really kind of important statistic as well to bring to the fore because these reflect things like you know, people are self-excluding from inclusion in the city but it has ramifications. They're excluding themselves from nighttime economies. It has an economic perspective. People who are afraid of going into public space or scared of public space are frequently not catching public transport. They're driving and they're singular uh, passenger in a car. The environmental impact is present as well. So there's a whole range of kind of different connections that we can make from just this notion of people feeling unsafe in the city or excluded from the city and we need to think through that entire story and the entire narrative. Um, I think that's probably enough from me. Emily, all yours. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jean. Um, next guest is Emily Floyd. So Emily is an internationally acclaimed public artist and sculptor and a senior lecturer at Monash Art Design and Architecture. She explores the history of play with works designed for public engagement and interaction. Emily's been commissioned to produce multiple public art pieces in Melbourne and Sydney, and her works are included in museum collections, the National Gallery of Australia, Canberra, the Gallery of Modern Art Queensland, Museum of Contemporary Art Sydney, National Gallery of Victoria, the list goes on, the Victoria and Albert Museum London even. So thanks, Emily. Thank you, thank you. Um, how's this on the mic? Okay, how's the distance? Um, thank you so much. And thank you, um, Sarah, also for this amazing space. It, it is just so wonderful to be here. And um, I wanted to say about this exhibition as well, it's such an important project. And I think it, it really will change the way that public art and public space is understood. Um, the idea that the city can be a sculpture in itself, um, the idea that the city, this place, is a crime scene, um, that when you enter a crime scene, you slow down, you look for clues. That is what I see in this exhibition. I see the possibility of new formats, new ways of working, and a new generation as well, um, which is what we wanted to speak about uh, tonight. Um, to, go, to speak about my own work, um, Bianca, yeah. So my first experience of public art actually was more as a participant um, than an artist. So working uh, with artists in the community movement in the 1970s and 80s, I was privileged to be a participant. Uh, and this is a project, a mural project in North Melbourne. Um, and my experience of these projects was that a broad range of community groups came together. There was an amazing exchange of information uh, and of cultures, and um, that anyone could join in. And I think this gave me a sense that, public, that working in public um, felt, felt quite quite natural for me. And also, I think what distinguished these projects is limited resources, but actually a complex, sophisticated conversation around the sharing of those resources. Um, and when I left art school and, and went to, um, into practice, there was this feeling that projects presented in the museum are more sophisticated, are a higher culture, 
And this is not my, my experience at all. To me, these projects are so sophisticated and there is so much that can be learned. Um, so to move to, um, yeah, and thinking about the public space of making a work together really, I think, influence especially my teaching work and thinking about the production of a kind of non-fascist uh, space and a polyvocal space. Uh, but it also fed into a sculpture practice making kind of propositional outdoor classrooms. So this is a work for the Venice Biennale in 2015, which um, was a kind of bootleg library for uh, thinking about critical approaches to labour and especially the contribution of the Italian laboratory of women who looked at the, the relationship between childcare and labour and unpaid labour as well. Um, and if we can maybe just flick through... Oh, actually, I should talk about this one. Probably the work that is, has had the most engagement and use in my practice is abstract labour at Heidi. Um, I think that you can have an idea about what your work means. And for me, with this, I was thinking about the idea that Heidi has a culture of valuing abstraction and seeing it in terms of progress. Um, but the idea of abstract labour is the breaking down of our human life world into little sellable bits, um, which is what children have to look forward to. And so it has this kind of optimistic modernism um, fed in with the, the existential future that children inherit. But for children themselves, this work is something that they have just taken over and enjoyed and climbed on and uh, had this kind of anarchistic relationship to the sign next to it, which says, do not climb. Um, so I think this work has been useful as far as people, as far as children have engaged with it. Um, to perhaps to move to the next uh, and to conclude, I think rather than presenting a modernism that is a universal singular form, uh, this work that I created with Mary Featherstone for ACCA's uh, Unfinished Business Focus on Feminist Practice, what I really valued from this project was the contested spaces, the difficult conversations that we had around feminism in this space, uh, especially conversations with uh, Puala uh, Bala uh, from the curatorium uh, critiquing feminism and, um, yeah, looking at it as a, a problematic and troubled history. So I feel very privileged to have had that, been part of that, that debate. Thank you. Thanks so much, Emily. Um, and last but not least, Timothy Moore, um, our next guest, is a director of sibling architecture, also a lecturer in architecture at Monash, and the co-curator of Melbourne Design Week, presented by the National Gallery of Victoria, about to launch. Um, so Timothy also works as a researcher at XYX Lab, and also explores gender-sensitive design practices and theory, and he's contributed to exhibitions, publications, events, and advocacy that investigate the intersection of sexuality, gender, and architecture. Thank you. Thank you. The next slide, thanks. Um, so this is in the room next to you, so if you haven't been through it, maybe a bit of a shock. 
And it was when Sarah said before the question to Nawit Caroline, do you see yourself represented in country? I guess the question in this room is, do you see yourself represented in the global supply chain? So you're looking at a really different material approach, which came from a starting point in the brief of the project. You know, these, these projects aren't made on country in Victoria. You don't see them represented in this room, you know, with rolled steel, et cetera. Um, some bricks you would. Um, but our project started um, with the global supply chain because it was a just-in-time project in the way that um, we didn't have much time to do the project, but also um, another element to the project was, was really important in the brief from Annika, Miriam, and um, also with Max as well to consider the circularity of everything, like how can it return back out into the world. So we started with Bunnings um, as our approach to the, the room. And, and understanding how all this work could be returned or reused or be kept by ACA. So there's dollies in there for the technicians. Um, maybe the only thing is MDF, but so you know, the plinths are repainted from previous shows as well. But I guess the approach that we took conceptually was all of these works represent works that are out in the city. So we were interested in a tableau vivant, like a family photo moment, where they all come back together and have their family photograph together and then drift out back into the city, and also the materials that supported it as well. Um, we didn't have the time to think about the relationship between the content, so we kind of looked at the form of the content, which maybe designers and architects do a lot. Um, so we looked at what is 2D, what is 3D, and what is 4D, and kind of created a polyphonic chorus where different rows are 2Ds, 3D, 4D as well. Uh, next slide. And so it's really a kit of parts, especially where it's just in time where we didn't actually know some of the content was arriving to a few days before. So the technicians could also use this language to rebuild it in different ways. So it's kind of like uh, a language, I guess, or a grammar, which the technicians could then utilize for themselves as well. Next slide. Um, but we're also thinking at the same time, I guess it's kind of um, intuitive in the way that we work to put it together, but we, on reflecting upon the work, we're interested in this idea of the hoarding. And you know, often you know, the hoarding um, borders public space. And so sibling, we're often interested in the edges, edge conditions or the thresholds. And so it's just kind of a continuation of us to say, you know, not only is it about what is public space, but it's also about these edges or what's behind the hoarding that influences what's on the other side of the hoarding as well. So look beyond the fence is kind of the gag in the office for the project. Next slide. But you know, what, what comes down to the hoarding or this edge condition, we're also interested in architecture elements that sit between two program spaces. So just unpacking that, you know, between an office and a classroom, the hallway. Um, the vestibule, the veranda, the stairs, um, other places of circulation, because this is kind of spaces that aren't really programmed per se or really prescribed. So it provides an opportunity for people to exist um, outside of hierarchy. So whatever project we kind of do, we're kind of interested in these spaces. Um, um, and this is the picture of Gertrude Glasshouse, which is a nonprofit arts institution. And this is the outpost in Collingwood. And we're interested in the threshold here as expanding a space for social activity um, as much as providing a space for the gallery. We're really interested in you know, what happens at a gallery opening as well and providing space for that. And the next slide. And just with the last slide here, this is kind of an extension of this idea of the threshold and some of the work that um, connects to XYX Lab as well. And a lot of the work that XYX Lab does looks with their free-to-be reports looked at how to make safer cities. And that's kind of informed some of the work that Sibling has done as well. Um, we're interested in how people feel safe. So many exit points. We're interested in stimulation and joy. Um, hence the bright color or the Sibling blue that's often referred to but also with lighting as well. You can't see it in this video, but lighting to allow people to feel safe. And lastly, offering many diverse spaces where lots of groups can coexist together uh, without necessarily having to be on top of each other. And this project's just an e exemplar of that. That's it. Thank you. Thanks, Timothy. Um, so that's a fairly rich platter to draw on. Um, 
I think we've done excellently for time. We've got about 15 minutes for some questions, and I'm going to take some from the audience in a bit, but perhaps we'll kick off with a bit of warm-up. But get your, if you've got burning questions, get them ready. We've got a mic, a roaming mic that's able to be used. Um, I guess one of the things that came out for me from that was this, um, and not surprisingly, if we're let's say, understanding the socially rich aspects of stories in space, that time comes through. Um, I mean, one of Emily's pieces was called Unfinished Business. You talk about sort of geological time of materials that are foregrounded. Um, Timothy's been j just then talking about recycling or the provisional of the immediate time. Those seem really um, important things and, and and they neatly fit with something that I find quite fascinating. One of uh, a sort of government um, level head of planning at Camden once said that we basically need to recognize the problems of end state planning for cities, which means time stops with an idea. So I guess what the question might be, um, do you think it matters that we, these sorts of practices, sit at the edges of mainstream city making? Or do you think in some way they could be incorporated into that mainstream? So not seen as art or, um, let's say, even marginalized practices, but seen as mainstreaming ways of making cities. And what, what are the challenges of that? Yes. <laughs> Um, I think the whole premise of the way we approached this exhibition was that it could be something mainstream and it didn't have to be something that was niche and also it's something that can be done without, well, in part without um, engaging with traditional owners and I caveat that very heavily in that I mean that if you're going to work on a project on country, you need to respect that country, you need to make sure it's um, you're not contributing to the demise of its health um, and that you're effectively leaving it in a better place than it was. Um, but not every project can engage with traditional custodians. It's not possible. And traditional custodians might also not want to engage on every project. So, you know, like what goes around comes around. Um, so for me, materiality is one way that we can express the country that these projects are on. But if we can have that engagement with traditional custodians, then we can layer on a cultural understanding. But at the very least, it is of country. So yes, I think that this doesn't have to sit at the fringe. I think hopefully this exhibition makes it easier for people to incorporate into their practice. And I, I think that goes alongside your interest in guidelines and protocols for how you, how you do mainstream things that are currently considered on the margins. Um, Emily, have you got any thoughts about that? Well, I completely agree that the that protocols need to be built into formal commission structures, absolutely, and, and the, that, that directly relates to the, the quality of the project and the outcome. Um, that completely needs to change. I think it, it is changing, but um, it needs to accelerate. Um, for, for artists, actually doing public projects is a way to kind of assimilate with the mainstream. And the best thing about it is the mainstream financial arrangements. So working for a museum or a gallery, there is this kind of blurry um, labor arrangement of unpaid work. And I think that system has completely failed artists. So public commissions do provide a a really important space of shelter um, for artists during their career to get, to, get um, to be awarded the opportunity to work in public space, can nurture an artist's practice or a, a collective's practice for, for a long time. And that then comes back into these spaces as well. So um, yeah, I, I completely, um, support that kind of relationship embedding. Sure. Um, one of the, I think one of the great things about communication design is it's mainstream. It's like the, the bill posters are a part 
of an everyday urban vernacular, its location in that very posh kind of corner over there is kind of wrong. It needs to be in the, in the public domain. And I think being able to take control of it and subvert it in some ways by being able to you know, take on very inexpensive processes like bill poster uh, printing and pasting. And even like I was talking about before, where it's located in amongst all this other stuff, this other visual language of the city, even though it, the other stuff, questions what you're doing, what you're doing questions it as well. And it's, um, yeah, it is just such a, an accessible form of being able to put uh, ideas into the world is through, you know, simple processes that communication designers do all the time. Yeah, just maybe I'll come back to the idea of time, and you've heard deep time and just in time, and, you know, not being able to deliver things on time is a risk for property owners, uh, clients, people who commission, um, local government as well, and I'm, I guess, well, you know, interested in expanding time. Um, it calls for a riskier planning vision, which is which is hard for clients um, to be able to give that over. But like, you know, what I find fascinating about temporary art or public art, and also architecture and design as well, is that it brings a lot of different constituents. In, into the public round and involved in the, um, different types of projects. And it really brings people at a bottom-up scale into a kind of longer-term urban development projects. So, you know, always advocating architecture projects at Sibling, I'm sure others do as well for more art and more temporary architecture. Um, but often uh, developers will often think they're getting a space together temporarily or a artwork to look at, but that's kind of what you tell them, I find, and then actually what you deliver can be something different. I think there's a lot of gaps and cracks that open up in temporary art, architecture and design that, um, um, that, that is fantastic for longer-term projects that we work on. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that money came up there and finance, because my second question was going to be, I was going to draw on another favourite reference, which uh, I think Jane Jacobs described one sort of money that goes towards city making is cataclysmic, like finance as an investment, hardcore, and that what we lack, we have a lot of cataclysmic money in our systems and very little of what the alternative, which is gradual money, um, which is the sort of operating fund for cities. And I guess this sort of public practice has the potential to claw back some of the cataclysmic money into the gradual but I guess I'm interested to know if you sort of experience that and what is, it, you mentioned it, Emily, it's, it provides a better resource, public works. Does it, does it still balance against the cataclysmic finance in development and the sorts of, does, well, I think is there, there a fair balance yet? There was a formula of 1%. I don't know if that um, still, still happens, but I would just recommend that the conversation begins very early um, and that, that those, those protocols are in place and that, that things are going to roll out over the lifetime of those projects and you might not have what you thought you were going to have at the start but there's, there's being open to a conversation and I think that's where, we'll, where we will get some, cha some change. The actual structure, too, of those formal projects is via competition. And so they're arranged in the same way as if you were commissioning a, a toilet block. Mm -hmm. So you have to have like a public tender, three people um, or three entities compete with one another for this thing, and then it's finished the design is set in stone because that is what is accepted. But for those practitioners, they have just put in this work up front um, and there's no opportunity to then develop and have a conversation. And I would definitely recommend it must be plurivocal. The best projects have different artists, different practitioners working together not one voice. I think that, that is so important. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Any other reflections on finance? How we lever from the built environment more finance for the operating 
social funds of public space? I don't know the answer to that question, <laughs> but I do know that it's an issue. There's never, like, they're basically the, the sm well, one real world impact of that, at least for us, is the smaller the operating budget is for maintenance, the more robust the project has to be, and therefore the less opportunity for joy there is because everything has to be um, the most industrial mm. version of its kind. And, you know, that's not design, that's designing for disaster that mm. may never happen. Mm. Hoping it doesn't fall apart. I don't have an answer. No, it's not, it's not clearly the answer isn't there yet. Um, I wondered if anybody in the audience has a burning question they'd like to pull out for our illustrious, yeah, sure. Are we sharing? Hi, um, my name's Jesse. Uh, I had a question for Emily. Um, and feel free to pass it on. Um, I had a question regarding the abstraction idea that you're talking about, a public space, and the spaces that are directly outside of us right now um, surrounding ACCA, where there's, well, at least in my opinion, very segmented artworks that are placed in particular areas but not really communicating too much to each other. Um, uh, is this Heidi? You, sorry, I can't quite hear. We've got a bit of an acoustic. Oh. Sorry, I did. Which particular work were you? Yeah, yeah, the one at the one at Heidi. The ideas you're talking about at Heidi. Yes, yeah. yes, and the the fact that it's a sculpture park, and the the works don't talk to each other. Oh. Is, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I can actually. Um, <laughs> so I, I was talking about the ideas that are there. Yeah. 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 Oh, you mean that that they? Yeah. Well, that's. I mean that. If I can engage in some auto critique, which is a beautiful feminist principle. The first work that I did was that work on the freeway. And that is 12 metres tall. It's very singular. Um, and my idea at the time was this kind of postmodern pastiche of artworks from existing in Melbourne put together in one work. Um, and there was the challenge of the freeway, etc. It was made very quickly, the concept, in a day. But I worked on that for five years, implementing it, by which time I had grave doubts about <laughs> everything. I do, when I go past it, I do think, um, what, how does it? relate to the place. I see it more as a kind of pop work in a sense. Um, but this is me unfolding my practice in public and early works don't go away. This is, they're there for the duration. And what I would say about that work, it's supposed to be there for 30 years. I don't think it should be there for 30 years. I think perhaps it's had its time. Um, and this is a conversation we have to have. I think works should be there as long as they're relevant. And in the case of those works, they can be ready to be recycled. Um, but yeah, this is, this, is art. this is public practice. It has a, an epic duration. Any other um, questions anyone would like to ask? Mm. Or do they want to be 
Yeah, I mean, I think that probably we can ask some of our guests, but from my perspective, it's a sort of critical issue in the sense that um, if you look now at places where art and cultural um, commissioning has happened in city making and regeneration, there's some level to which it's being co-opted uh, into a bigger sort of, um, you know, pop-up aesthetic or other sorts of, so, you know, the mainstreaming hasn't necessarily been good or it's led to a sort of um, trivialization perhaps of processes that are quite complicated. So I take your point. I guess um, the issue is a tension within the process. It shouldn't have to be that that, that that is the problem. And I don't know, the, the artist as a sort of on the margins looking in, I don't know. I'm quite interested in other forms of sort of, you know, relational practice myself. But maybe I'll ask the panel. Well, I mean, you can be at the edge and be at the centre as well. I'm not being pithy by saying that. Like, I want to be sitting in boardrooms and having influence on people of power. And I think you can work at the edge and also work at the centre and wear different hats at different times. But I'm not one or the other. And I see sibling as well involved in, you know, grassroots public programming type of work or working in different type of spaces as much as we are working with local and state government as well. And that's really important for us to wear hats in different ways because I feel often when you're at in the edge at the center, like you can kind of ask questions to people in suits because you can kind of get away with it. Like, I don't want to be pithy again, but like, you know, I'm kind of the known sometimes as the guy with the funny shoes when I walk into a meeting with people with blue suits and shiny shoes. And so you can kind of get away with a lot more. So I think you can be edgy and be there and actually change people's opinions when you're in a boardroom with people and it can change their project by just saying a sentence or asking a particular question as well. Yeah, we really rely on the architects to advocate and do that education, I think, for, for difficult work to emerge. Yeah, I think it's a very good, a very good point, and um, I've talked about it before as a sort of you're complicit in the process, but you're also able to sort of poke at it from the outside, and in some ways that that is the role of I would say the cult creative practitioners in society is to sort of both understand it's the 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 com the problems of the city and how we make it as well as and operate within that not reject it. But I, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, do we have any other burning questions or responses from the panel? We're sort of at time. And I know that there's drinks outside. And we also can keep talking um, more informally in the, in the foyer. So um, I think if nobody's waving. Uh, we'll draw it to a close. Thank you very much to the panel for their time. I know it's a big ask, but it's been great to have us here.